So therefore, be proud to be a decent American rather than be just a wanker whipping up fear. Because you're supposed to tackle people, you're supposed to hit people at pace and hit them hard as part of the game. It's not chess we're playing. I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. The double champ does what the f he wants. Hello everybody and welcome along to chapter 83 of What's the Story Podcast. My name is Danny Murray, Graham Merrill Merrigan. How are you? Tremendous kid. Deadly. Loving life this week. So am I, got a new car man. I know, you look absolutely delighted with it. Yeah, buzzing. Love it. Bit of a beast. Beast. Yeah. That's sort of two of us have new cars now. It's very long. Tell me granny Betty that I, I'm going to uh, lease it out to funeral homes, put the, the coffin oh, in the back. She, she half believed me, so granny don't be stupid. <laughs> Little money spinner for you. Little money spinner, no man. Money spinner, budge. Get back to Vegas. Oh, I'd love to go back to Vegas. I know, yeah. Especially now, it's being cold, like, do you know what I mean? And every night. It's snowing like, in Vegas. No, what, what, like, at the weekend. Ah, stop the lights. I'm telling you. Stop the lights. I'm telling you, there was a blizzard. A blizzard in Las Vegas? Yeah, yeah. What, was there somebody making it rain, was it? No, I'm telling you. I've seen it. Seen it with my own eyes. See, I follow you a bit of dirt on Snapchat, and she had a. She had it. Folly a bit of dirt on snack. Love it. And she was going home from softball. softball and she was man. caught in the blizzard. Shocking. In Vegas. Wow. Yeah, swear to God. Right then, wow. That's me putting my box. True story. True story, bro. I um, think, think she was in Vegas. <laughs> you hope now. Uh, yeah, so this is chapter 83 of the award-winning What's the Story podcast. Um, if it's your first time listening... You can get all our old episodes on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Podbean, on Podcast Republic, Podcast Addict, anywhere and everywhere. WTS Pod. That's the people still start from the start, yeah, isn't it? it is, yeah, it's mad. Like, we're still getting that. People listening to, like, Chapter 1 yeah. all the way back. It's crazy, like. Yeah, they'll hear Lindsay's voice. Yeah. It'll dope. Um, for any American listeners that may be listening, Chapter 1 is W-A-N, as opposed to 1 O-N-E, <laughs> as you may know it as. Of course, it's one. Um, you will get an education in Dublin language if you continue to listen to podcasts. Sort of swally and folly and doorboard, etc., etc., etc. And your little pox bottle. Pox bottle, yeah. Um, you'll hear the phrase, Bono was a pox, quite a <laughs> bit, which is spray-painted around the streets of Dublin. Did you ever hear the saying, gift? Oh, that's gift. I love it, man. Yeah. When something great happens, oh, gift. Man, have you got dinner ready? Yeah. yeah. Oh, gift. <laughs> love it. <laughs> I haven't um, heard it for years. Tell you what else is gift. What? The fabulous and famous Fitzpatrick Castle Hotel. You check out www.fitzpatrickcastle.com for more. Good reaction to Caroline Mack. Yep. Big uh, Mac. Caroline McWigan of Suicide or Survive. Great woman, great organisation. And uh, as we revealed last week, we'll be doing a live show in aid of them. More details on that in the coming weeks. But this week, we're going to be talking to a man who. Um, you may not necessarily have heard of him, but his work is outstanding. Mm. Um, journalist, author, and fighter of the good fight, Ervin Muchnik will be joining us. He's the man behind Concussion Inc. Um, to give you kind of a sample of what he's done, he's wrote, he's wrote a couple of books on pro wrestling, particularly around kind of the murkier waters of pro wrestling. So he wrote um, a book on the story of Chris Benoit and Nancy Benoit, which as we all know, unfortunately ended in disaster. one of the biggest tragedies ever 
He also wrote a book on um, Jimmy Superfly Snooker, who recently passed away. But um, it was around the case of a woman called Nancy Argentino, who was Snooker's... I don't know, where do you get boyfriend girlfriend thing? Were they just a flame? I think it was just a flame. I'm not sure, though. But anyway, um, Nancy Argentino... You know what the wrestlers, do you know what I mean? Yeah, they used yeah. to have flousies in every town. Every town, yeah. Um, but Nancy Argentino was found dead in Jimmy Superfly Snooker's motel room back in 1982, I think it was. Yeah. Um, nothing ever came of it until recently. Irv's work, Irv Muchnick's work, um, led police to reopen investigations. And I think charges were being put forward. And then Superfly passed away. Yeah, but they, before he passed away, his... Um, his his legal. his legal team yeah. basically said that he wasn't fit uh, to stand trial because of dementia and, and that kind of thing. F- a frail and illness. So, but um, his daughter is currently a wrestler at the moment, Tamina Snuka. Tamina Snuka, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. So if you Google Irvin Muchnick or go to Concussion Inc., you can see more of his work and you can you can buy the books and whatnot. But um really looking forward to talking to Irv. It's gonna be an interesting one. WWE and their television programmes last week did pay respects to Jimmy Snooker. What do you think of that? I don't really know what to think, but Snooker was performing my time, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um like obviously you would have seen him when he popped popped back up at uh, Royal Rumbles and the like over yeah, the years. Yeah. Segue to that in a couple of minutes. Yeah. Um But WrestleMania <sighs> with Jericho a couple of years ago as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. I just my opinion on it would be that obviously he's a legend of pro wrestling, but mm. he's a ca- character. Would that be? Yeah, I was gonna say he, a questionable character. Kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, but he's a television character for their program, and so they mm. figured they had to pay respects. Yeah, regardless yeah, of any dirty well, laundry. I was gonna say that, that there obviously is something there, but I suppose at the end of the day he was never found guilty. Yeah. So, but um, we'll talk to Irv about that. Yeah, yeah, hundred um, percent. He's not a fan of Linda McMahon either, so it'll be interesting yeah, to get his yeah. take on all that. Like, but yeah, look, stay tuned for that, lads. It, it's a good one. But first, Graham, time for something I like to call housekeeping. That was a good one, man. I thought about it on the spot that, there, but yeah, I like that. Ad hoc, no man. What's Lord. ad hoc mean? Ad hoc, it's like just on the spot. Like yeah, no, I know it means on the spot, but yeah. like, where did they get the phrase ad hoc? I couldn't tell you. I'm sure it's some sort of Latin, like, ad hockey's young yeah. or something, which was, like, to do something impromptu, yeah, you know, like, yeah. just... People that say ad hoc and alas annoy me. Alas? Yeah. Like, as in, oh, we were going to go to the shops, but alas, it didn't happen. That is just ridiculous, like, yeah, you don't need to say alas. Yeah, do you know what really uh, gets me <laughs> is uh, he wouldn't say boo to a goose. Yeah. He was going around saying boo to goose, like, <laughs> My mum, the other night, actually, she says... Uh, boo to geese, rather, not gooses. She goes, we're heading out. And I says, oh, are you, are you going to the, the party? I will just take it by ear. <laughs> I was like, what does that mean, mum? And she goes, like, oh, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. And I, I get the expression, but we play it by year. Like, a year is 365 days. Yeah, that's a long party. I don't know, I've been saying years. That's a long party. It's who's a she long hang- party, who's yeah. hanging out with? Well, who the knows? Great Gatsby. Yeah. <laughs> um, play it by year. Play it by year. Yeah. I love little sayings like that, though. Oh, yeah, that we, just we, make we, no sense, but we say it. Yeah, we've we talked, know what we mean. We, 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 might do, we talked about it on the previous chapter, but we might bring it back up with some new ones. Yeah. One that really annoys me is per se. Oh, I hate it. Oh, per se. Per se and alas. Get, yeah, get out, you little dope. If you say alas, you're a brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> you're a pox. <laughs> you're a pox. Um... <laughs> 
Graham. Yes. Ireland has somebody who is now 88 million richer. 88 and a half million richer. Um, the big news this week was somebody wonder At the time of recording this, we still don't know who it is. So, yeah. Or um, the location in or Ireland. Or the location in Ireland. So I'm going to start. Is it you? No, I was going to start the rumour straight away and say, Gary Mackle's being quiet. Yeah. <laughs> he hasn't been quiet to me, trust me. Oh, was, all right, pest. okay. Pest. Absolute pest. Um, but you're 88 million. So yeah. very, very quickly, because I don't want to spend too long on it because we've lots to talk about. Yeah. What would be the first thing you buy? First thing I'd buy. And don't say, oh, gaff, or oh, give me my money, or, no. I mean, for selfish thing, that's ridiculous. I mean, there's, you always get the fear of going back to work on a Monday and a Sunday night, and you can't sleep, and you toss and turn, and I've often stood up thinking about what I'd spend money on. Right. The Euro Millions. Yeah, spend it before you have it. I've done that all the time. All the time. I've always just said I'd spend, I'd, I'd go on a big holiday until the the custom gaff is built. Right on. And the gaff would be built up uh, behind the Tassie and land up there. Really? Yeah. I'd like to stay local. Yeah, like, I'd, I'd be buying a gaff on Cliney Hill, though. I wouldn't be... Actually, no, I'd probably go Cliney Hill facing Docky Island if I could. Yeah. yeah, that's a good shout. Sorry. Yeah, that's probably where I'd go now. Yeah. You know, let's get the sunrise in the morning and all the... I'd mats. be closer to Ballybrack, though, if I was in the, uh, the Tassie. Yeah, I suppose you would, but like... It's more impressive bringing the moths back to a guy facing the island. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. That's my island. True story. Oh, is, is that your island? That's my <laughs> it island. It is now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the goats. Ever see the goats out in the island? No, I've never been out in Docky Island. No, I mean, you can see them from the land. Like. Can you? Yeah. No, I've never seen them. Yeah, there's goats and there's rabbits out there. Wowzers. Yeah. Well, there definitely used to be goats. since well, a long time since went down there. Like, There's telescopes down there, so yeah. I'd say you could see. Because remember, one of the vets down in Ark Vet Care where I bring me walrus shaped Labrador when there's something wrong with her. Um, one of the, the vets down there used to definitely be involved with looking after the animals on Docky Island. Wow. You know, what would you spend the money on? I, if it was 88 million, I think the first thing I would buy would be a gaff in Monaco or a yacht. Monaco? Yeah. Why Monaco? Because that's where all the rich lads live, isn't it? I wouldn't leave Ireland, though. No, neither would I. I'd just go on extensive holidays. No, I think I'd Extended buy, holidays. I'd buy holiday homes so that I wouldn't have to worry about staying in a poxy hotel. Down in Pirates Cove in Wexford? Yeah, yeah, de- <laughs> definitely. 100% <laughs> just outside Gordy. You know what I mean? I often said as well... Um, You're not wi- me mic stand there. Uh, winning a substantial amount, such as yeah. 88 million, that I would knock down Ballyrack Football Club and redevelop it. And football would be free... Because... Is this your version of the Bertie Bowl? <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah. <laughs> I'd have, like, a full-time... full. I'd, I'd, I'd obviously keep the boxing club there. Yeah. The boxing club, uh, Celtic K1 would stay. They'd all stay. I wouldn't kick any of them out. Great, great local resources. The people of Ballyrack get behind them. Ballyrack boys, Celtic K1 and Ballyrack Boxing Club. Uh, the Borough Boxing Club, I think it's called. Borough Boxing Club now, was it? Um, Sorry. And it's Ballyrack Football Club. It's not Ballyrack Boys anymore, isn't it? No, it's been Gen- Ballyrack Football Club. Gender equality and all that. Ballyrack Football Club for years. But I'd, I'd introduce free football. Love it. Because. So nobody would have to pay subs anymore? Yeah, but the kids are. The parents are being charged a fortune in oh. these clubs. I remember when I used to play football, I think it was £2 a week subs. £2 a week. Yeah. And every so often I'd only pay a pound and be like, oh, I'll have to pay double next week. And I'd have already bought a Kit Kat in the shop. Like, But now you're, I think you're talking about probably 100, a 150 a year or 200 euro a year. Jesus. And you get the kit. Do you get to keep the kit now, do you? I believe so. Oh, yeah, sure, you're paying for it. Jeez, we used to just pay two quid a week and then... I think um, you get I to think, keep the kit, yeah. I think... I could John, be wrong, though. Air managers, Peter O'Hanlon and John Murphy... Um, 
they would basically rotate, I think, well, when I say they would rotate, Porel Catron, uh, John's wife, and uh, Paula, Peter's wife, would take turns washing the kit. Yeah, my mum always used to wash and, the kit. And uh, well. we were awful bastards. We'd be diving in muck just for the crack. Yeah. <laughs> there are, I, I used to give Peter and Paula an awful time. They're great people, fair I'm, play to them. Great I'm volunteers now, to Ballybrack as well, I have to say. I'm not actually sure if you get to keep the jerseys because I know my dad was involved in a project yeah. where you send the jerseys to Africa. Oh, that's very good. So... So somewhere in, in Africa now, there's a lot of lads running around the Bally Brack. Brack kids, yeah. We are yellow, we are black, we are super Bally Brack. What? La, 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 Let's go fucking mental. Let's go, yeah. None um, of the gears like the Bulls and the Wonder Armour gear anyways. Sponsored by the Rolling Down. Oh, the Rolling Down. Good Jesus. Mm. Man, we need to get some Rolling Donuts in here. Get them sent up, Lisa. Unbelievable, lads. Taste sensation if you're out in town or if you're a tourist in Dublin. Go for it and tell them the Ballybrack Bulls sent me. And what's the story podcast? And what's the story podcast? Um, they're not Bachelor's Walk. Check them out. Unbelievable. And, and King Street. And then make your way back out to uh, Fitzpatrick Castle up on Cluny Hill and enjoy a donut while you take in the beautiful surrounds and beautiful view. Um, Royal Rumble, because we're running out of time for housekeeping already. Royal Rumble. What do you reckon? So the Royal Rumble's on. We go out on a Sunday, so if you're listening to this on a Monday, Royal Rumble's already been on, but we're doing this before the Rumble has been on. So we're chatting about it. So what's your prediction? Who's going to win the Rumble? I actually haven't a clue. Finn Balor, friend of the show. I would love it if Finn Balor... He's going to eliminate the, the Undertaker. Him and Taker, the last two people standing. Finn absolutely batters him out of it. That's, that's, what the, that's what the fans want, but what the fans want, they usually never get. Yeah, and Batiste will come back and win it. <laughs> what was that about, huh? What was that about? Uh, that was completely wrong. That was the year Daniel Bryan should have won it, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, definitely. Daniel Bryan definitely should have won it. Um, been watching a couple of ro- classic Royal Rumbles. Yeah. Actually, Saturday night, um, listener as well, Neil Keegan, shared yeah. the 1991 Royal Rumble match. I've seen that, actually. Yeah, I, I think so I watched it. Yeah, why not? Um, Joe Reid got in touch with us on Twitter um, yeah. with his predictions and that. I think he actually backed Batista to win at the mad thing. Batista's not, he's not going to be in it, is he? I don't know. I, don't, I know there was rumours about it, but I actually don't know. Like, is there but, actually? Yeah, Joe, Joe Reid, loyal listener. Fair play to Joe. Um, I, love if, I love if Finn Balor showed up and Undertaker is in the ring and the two of them have a, oh, be amazing. a square off. I would love, right? And then they, they get both of them throw each other out by accident at the same time. They fight to the back and then we don't see them to WrestleMania. Nah, man, here's what I want, right? Last four people to be Lesnar, Goldberg, Finn. And, well, now I want Finn to come in as number 30, right? Yeah. So Lesnar, Goldberg, Taker, last three left. And they're all battering each other. Well, like yeah, Go- yeah. Goldberg and Taker are battering Lesnar. They've, they've formed a little mini alliance, right? Yeah. Little mini ministry, like back in the day. Yeah. And then, boom, lights go down. Father's me as a kid. He's number 30. And he just comes in and starts flying around the ring, battering everybody. Goldberg and Lesnar, after a couple of minutes of Finn doing his thing, eliminate one another. Yeah. And you get that face off between Taker and Finn. And the crowd just chant, holy shit, holy we'll shit. See, we'll see. With that, yeah, and him winning the rumble, yeah, then he doesn't face Taker at the rumble. Wrong, why? Wrong, because Taker gets angry, and then WWE do what they do best, and they create some sort of weird situation where it ends up as a triple threat match for the title at Mania. Okay, I'm not buying it, but yeah, I just really want Finn to win. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> we had him on. I think it was like chapter twenty eight or something like that. <laughs> Finn Balor, aka Fergal Deva. It'd be unreal if he won. It'd be unreal if he was even in it. Would be. I'd love to see him make his return. Yeah, really. He, would. he showed up at a, a OTT event there a couple of weeks ago. Um, he looks fit. And then he was on that WWE UK tournament, championship tournament. 
Yeah. And again, he looked, he didn't have any braces on looked his shoulder. Or, he got stem cell stuff implants into his Love shoulder. Look, I'm out of all that stuff, man. Real. I'm out of all that stuff. Be class now if we're talking about next week and um, saying, do you have a do you have a favorite Royal Rumble memory? No, I was, I was, I was just going to say, Sorry. be class next week if we're talking. Holy shit! Did you yeah, see Finn Balor? That actually will be amazing. Um, memories. Uh, Royal Rumble '92 when Ric Flair outlasted 29 other men to beat it, and his promo after the match was yeah. just unbelievable. Um, I think one of mine was... That's the one that sticks out. I don't know if it's my favourite, though. I think it was about... It's not, this is my favourite. It's just one that... Sticks like, out. Like it, was a whole, like, it was one name where I was watching it, and it actually made me go, holy sh... The second it happened. What was it? When John Cena returned, I think it was... Oh, that was actually ago. good. That, that was, was good. I'm not a big John Cena That was fan, Madison like, Square Garden. It was. Because I don't think... Anybody was, was expecting nah, that, that and in his good. music here, and I think Triple H was in the ring. Yeah, yeah. And even Triple H's reaction and all, like even as a grown up, I was like, "All right, all right, all right, yeah. all right, you got me, you, you got, got me. me, I'm in, I'm in, let's go." I'm that cheering on Cena here, man. That was class. It was. Um, I liked last year's moment as well when um, AJ Styles made his debut. Yeah, I think they kind of wasted him in the Rumble though. Like it was great. He's, he's, he was there for a substantial amount of time. Yeah, but he didn't hit one. Uh, was Styles Clash? Is that name his finisher? Did he not? No, and I think that's because I think they like built up to it so many times and then it didn't happen because the crowd were like, oh, yeah. boo, and then yeah. But what I liked about it is because I didn't expect them to get that big reaction. Yeah, I always said that TNA guys would make it in WWE. Ah, yeah, no, but AJ Styles. AJ Styles, man, he's, he's unreal. Ah, he's unreal. Uh, another one was when Austin beat Mr. McMahon. Remember that one? Yeah. Or no, Mr. McMahon. Mr. McMahon beat, beat Austin. Austin. I should say, yeah. yeah. Oh, Vinny Macqua. Mental. Unreal. Tweet us, lads, at WTS Pod, your favourite Royal Rumble memory. Um, it goes back to 1988. Yeah. First winner was Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Oh. Love Hacksaw Jim Duggan. If I let my hair grow long enough, sometimes I look like him. Because <laughs> of a spanner eye as well, you see. <laughs> the gunner eye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Right then. <laughs> what do you say we talk to our guest right let's now? talk to our guest um, Irv has also done a lot of work lads on a, a case that's near and dear to Ireland so whatever about the pro wrestling side of things we're going to talk to him about we're going to kick things off talking about a guy called George Gibney now some of you may have heard of George Gibney and some of you may not have but essentially we'll give you a brief summary George Gibney was an Irish Olympic swimming coach who in 1993 was charged with 27 counts of indecent assault and unlawful carnal knowledge of uh, basically sexually abusing young Irish swimmers who were in his care. Bit of a heavy topic. It's not something we'd normally try and dabble with because by no means are we experts in this sort of stuff at all. But this story is just so interesting and because it's quite local, we thought we'd cover it. Gibney was based in the Glen Alban Swimming Pool in Stilorgan and then later Trojan Swimming Club in Newtown Park School, which is... A mere 10 minutes away from here. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting one to say the least. But he was charged with 27 counts of indecent assault and whatnot in 93. And in 1994, he successfully um, appealed and got, and won, I should say, a judicial review which um, prohibited the DPP from pressing on with the case against him. The interesting thing about that appeal and about winning the case so that the DPP couldn't press on about it 
was his solicitor who was representing him on the day was uh, related to the Chief Justice. A woman who happened to be sitting on the bench, which uh, <laughs> is mental. Like Patrick, uh, Patrick G- Gagley, I think was the solicitor. I can't remember off the top of my head. Really? Sure, they'll ever be able to tell us because he's done a lot on this. His sister, Susan Dunham, uh, yeah, was sitting on the bench. And uh, that, like, I just, I'm fairly certain every country has a thing about, like, relatives. Like, if your relative is the judge, you can't represent somebody in that, or vice versa, like, you can't be the judge or something, that somebody's lawyer is, like, related to you. And yet, somehow, this happened. Yeah. Um. So, anyway, so once that happened in Gibney fled Ireland, and uh, went to Glasgow, and then went to the USA, where he now resides. Um... And that's where we'll pick up the story with Ervin. But, it, like, I'm not messing when I say this is a crazy story. This is just bizarre. If you want to learn more about it, just Google Broadsheet. Or go to broadsheet.ie. Fantastic little website, lads. If you've never been on it, it's great. But they've covered this story extensively. Um, that's worth having a look. Go broadsheet.ie, George Gibney. Or just Google George Gibney swimming. And all them stories will start to pop up. You're kind of familiar with it as well, aren't you? Yep. Yeah. So the, the Gibney one, and I'm familiar with. Derry O'Rourke, I think, was the other swimming coach that was done. Oh. I think I'm ninety percent certain that was his name. Derry something, anyway. But look, we'll uh, we'll get talking about all that now with Irvin because um, he is leading the charge over in America against the Department of Homeland Security for giving Gibney a green card. Crazy, crazy stuff all together. But anyway, look, without any further ado, Ervin Muchnik. We're joined now by Ervin Muchnik, who, as we said at the top of the show, is a journalist, author, fighter of the good fight, um, and a man who's doing unbelievable work in kind of bringing, I suppose, injustices to, to the wider audience. Um, Ervin, thanks for joining us. And Hey, hey, thanks. It's, it's, uh, it's good to have a... A direct uh, a platform for my friends in Ireland. Yeah, it's 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 great because I I came to to, to find your work through Broadsheet.ie, and um and kind of I've expanded since then. Like, but the in particular the George Gibney case, which is the the kind of one that as we were talking there a minute ago, you said it's kind of at the forefront of your mind. Um, so firstly, what brought the George Gibney case to to your attention? Well, what brought the George Gibney case to my attention was that I have been investigating for now five years sexual abuse in USA Swimming. Now, how did I come to be investigating sexual abuse in USA Swimming? That's a story in itself. I had a daughter who's now 20 years old who was the jock of the family. I've got four kids. She was a she was a good swimmer, not a great elite Olympic-class swimmer, but a good swimmer. In fact, she inspired me to learn how to swim in adulthood. So it was great. I had a, I had a great few years running her to uh, uh, practices after school and to meets, you know, 50 miles away, getting up at 5 a.m. on Saturday morning. And it was, it was great. But there was a scandal on our team where the coach, uh, uh, quote, chaperoned, the star swimmer to a national meet in Florida. And it turned out that he twice raped her while she was there. 
and something we didn't know for a long time. But the team kind of collapsed. The Star Swimmers stomped off shortly thereafter. The team organizationally collapsed. We left because, uh, uh, you know, we weren't that serious about swimming anyway. But uh, my daughter had gotten her her time in, and she went to another team. And, and But I later heard that this coach had been arrested on a fugitive warrant from Florida. And so I, I, I uh, exposed, helped expose that story locally in the local alternative newspaper, the East Bay Express. And, and then I was done with it. Uh, but a couple of years after that, ABC and ESPN's Outside the Lines did big investigative reports on sexual abuse in American swimming. So it, it was at that point that I realized that I had been witness to the local precinct of a national problem. So I'm an investigative journalist. I started poking around two years after that because the, the uh, televised reports were in 2010. In 2012, I started following up to see what swimming had done, and I found not much. They had started something called a safe sport program, which I concluded was public relations and image buffing only. Right. And, uh, and so in the course of that, I heard about the long national agony of Irish swimming and George Gibney. I read the excellent book by Justine McCarthy, now with the uh, Irish edition of the uh, Sunday Times of London, a book called Deep Deception. Yeah. Got the whole story. And so two years ago in 2015, I decided to do a story on who sponsored George Gibney's green card. How did he get into America? How has he been harbored in America for more than 20 years? I filed Freedom of Information Act requests with the uh, Department of Homeland Security, which oversees U.S. citizenship and immigration services. And I got 104 pages, uh, or 102 pages, I should say, of which four were disclosed and 98 were redacted in their entirety. And the four disclosed pages were generic stuff that anybody could, could, could find. So I decided to litigate. We're now more than 18 months into that. But federal judge George Gibney, uh, excuse me, federal judge <laughs> Charles Breyer, who, by the way, is the, uh, is the brother of U.S. Supreme Court Justice uh, uh, Stephen Breyer, uh, okay. issued an excellent ruling in my favor uh, last month. We are most of the way through the 60-day deadline for the federal government to decide whether to uh, comply with the order or to appeal it. So I don't know yet whether we're still litigating, but I hope it's over. And uh, we'll see uh, what we get uh, in terms of the uh, process by which Gibney got into this country and remains here. And, and, and I believe that the documents, and I don't know how extensive the redactions are still going to be, uh, but uh, I, I believe that the documents are going to shed further light on, on the collusion of American swimming authorities, USA Swimming, and most particularly the uh, American Swimming Coaches Association in uh, sponsoring Gibney's uh, passage to the United States in the mid-1990s. And so for me, 
and I'm sorry I've rambled so long on this. No, but, keep going. Uh, for me, the story is not just justice for Gibney's many, many victims of sexual abuse, more than we could possibly know. Dozens, scores. I wouldn't be surprised if it's hundreds, but we don't have full information. It's not just justice for these people, as important as it is for the victims and their families and loved ones and for the entire you know, swimming community and everyone in Ireland who, who have seen this type of thing in a number of institutions, of course, including the Catholic Church. But it's not just that. It, for me, it's the story of the accountability of the American swimming authorities in, in letting this man come into our country. And it gets to the point that the abuses in amateur sport are global in scale. It's not just in swimming, but that's what I'm focused on right now. Yeah. Uh, but it crosses borders. So we have, you know, we have to use the church analogy. We have, we have, uh, uh, bad actors, uh, going not just from parish to parish or from county to county, but literally from country to country, from continent to continent. And that's a story that desperately needs to be told. Uh, absolutely. Um, I suppose with the Gibney case, um, his green card application, from what, what I know, was made in 1992, or at least that's when he was given kind of a, a character reference by the Irish police force on Garda Siakana. Uh, it was only a number of months later that charges were then placed uh, to say, like, uh, sorry, I lost the train of thought there. Charges were brought forward against Gibney, um, 27 counts of indecent assault. He didn't travel to America then, as he said, until the mid-90s. So how, in your opinion, is it a case that U.S. swimming um, definitely played a part in bringing them over, but how would somebody go about getting a green card if they've had convictions, such, such serious charges brought against them? Right. Well, th there's 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 a lot to unpack in what you just asked, and and the first thing is, um, as I understand the timeline, the certificate of character. From the guard, I was was uh, at a point when they knew charges were being brought, but they hadn't officially been entered yet. Okay. So I think that's important, and I, I got to stop on this point. I mean, I'm I'm. Uh, what is a certificate of character from the police? It sounds like to me like something out of a Charlie Chaplin movie from the <laughs> 1920s. I mean, it, what. What a ridiculous uh, concept that is. It's bizarre. Which, uh, you know, which is, uh, of course, not my problem. But uh, when we get to the green card, I mean, one of the things we need to, we we don't know is, was it uh, uh, a lottery? There were, there were programs in that period to facilitate Irish, uh, Ireland to America immigration, the Donnelly program, yeah. and there were others. There's a suggestion that it was that. Or was it uh, uh, engineered by uh, by some special means? Was he a person of extraordinary professional qualifications who got a spot? And there's reason to believe that there's that from the little that we've seen disclosed so far. I should say that after the 98 redacted pages, through the court process, 
the government was required to uh, to uh, produce what is called a Vaughn Index, where they list and justify each and every exemption from disclosure that they've made. And they partially released some more material. So what we have at this point is a is an offer of employment letter to Gibney. All the content redacted. We don't know who it's from, uh, but it says, uh, you know, we would we would like, you know, we would like offer you a job coaching our swimming team. So, so that, why that would be in his immigration file if 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 it was just a lottery, yeah, uh, 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 issuance of a green card is really not clear. These are all open questions at this point. What, um, why is it redacted if it's a Freedom of Information Act? I'm sorry? Why is it redacted if if you've gained access to these documents through the information, uh, Freedom of Information? Well, the government has claimed a number of exemptions, and, and, and you know, the, the, it's kind of unusual for a third party to look into an alien file. It's different than if you or I were to apply for our for what the government has on us but so it 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 is there is a principle of 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 privacy for somebody when a, when somebody comes from the outside now i of course our argument and and the judge largely accepted it uh is that there's a a, a compelling public interest here mm. under these circumstances in knowing more about this particular scenario but that's one reason why things were redacted another uh, reason for redactions was that uh, the government claimed exemptions under uh, uh, law enforcement records. Now, that's interesting in itself that they have law enforcement records. So what does that mean? Does that mean that they've been independently investigating him or that they've been getting reports from law enforcement authorities that they've been sticking into his 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 file? And uh, uh, how is that impacted or not impacted his ongoing resident alien status another another little thing in all this was in 2010 i believe it was uh, gibney was under siege there's an irish american gentleman in fort lauderdale florida named evan daly who started a uh, a child watch uh uh advocacy group and and he's been uh, reporting on Gibney's movements and whereabouts, and has confronted him in person several times. And there was, at that point, a renewed, and it's been renewed various times over the years. We're just at the latest one now. A renewed effort in Ireland to look again at his his criminal uh, allegations, which were dropped. Uh, in the 90s uh, to see if they can be revived, to look at new information that has emerged on those cases and on other cases that that the authorities didn't know about before, and to think about what steps would be needed to take to extradite him from America back to Ireland to uh, face justice. So in 2010, when all this was bubbling up, Gibney applied for American citizenship. This we know, again, from the Vaughn Index and partial documents that have been released. We don't know how that application resolved, but there is strong suspicion that his application was rejected 
And the reason it was rejected, if it was rejected, was that he lied on the uh, application to the question of whether he had ever had encounters with the criminal justice system. And, the, oh. and because the, we have a document where the, where the feds go back to him and sort of say, hold his hand and say, let's, let's do this over again. You're being asked not just whether you have ever been convicted of anything, but whether you have ever been charged. And if he answered untruthfully to that, and it jettisoned his application for citizenship, why did that not resonate back to the status of his green card and his continued uh, guest residency in our country? All a whole bunch of you know, riddles inside questions, inside enigmas that we just can't answer without daylighting more of this material that I'm seeking. Do we know if he has offended in in the States? Forgive me if you've... Here's what we know. He, He coached in the Denver area, in suburban Denver. He coached a USA swimming team in the mid 90s and he left under the cloud of an allegation that he had uh, he he had engaged in some type of sexual misconduct with one of his swimmers we don't have the details on it it could be as little as he snapped a girl's bra strap or something like that as she was walking by but whether it was minor or major the what the upshot of that was that there was renewed scrutiny. Remember, this is a period when the internet was just coming on. Mm. So accessing information wasn't uh, as facile as it is now. Um, and, but there was at that point scrutiny of his Irish past and he was separated from the swim team. We know that. I don't know all the details on it. And, of course, one of my frustrations, not just with the Gibney story, but with all of these stories of bad guy coaches who are a distinct minority in the 12,000 coaches in America with 400,000 youth swimmers, but enough of them to give us like serious concern about how the institutions, USA Swimming and, and American Swimming Coaches Association are dealing with with them but, uh, but but what so often happens is that a swim team fires the coach or accepts his resignation and then just makes it somebody else's problem they don't publicize it they don't because because they don't want headaches they don't want exposure they don't want lawsuits they don't want the repercussions for their image in the community and it just quietly goes away and that appears to be what happened at this team in Wheat Ridge, Colorado in the mid-90s. And Gibney went on from there. They have a succession of jobs in, in, uh, in Colorado, in California, in Florida now. I think maybe other states as well. Utah, I believe, uh, in the uh, airline industry, in the uh, human resources uh, departments of corporations, uh, in the hospitality industry. And I don't believe he has coached since then. But to answer your question directly, there appears to have been one incident which quickly ended his American swimming coaching career. And I've tried to get those records, and it appears that they were destroyed a few years later 
in a routine purge of police files. So yeah. I, I haven't been able to get anything there. And I haven't, been, I haven't been able to get the cops who were involved in that at the time, who are now retired, to talk to me about it. I haven't been successful. Routine purge, Erv. What, what, what does that mean? I'm sorry? Routine purge of documents. So was was that just a case where after a certain period of time has passed? Oh yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't think there was anything. Of course, I don't know, but I don't think there was anything nefarious. Okay. In the uh, in the destruction of those documents, I think they they were just purging old, you know, hard copy records. Yeah. Okay. Kind of thing. It doesn't happen now because they're digitized. Uh, so I think that's what's going on. But you know, I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be generous. Yeah. And sometimes the more you know. Sometimes the darker explanation comes to the fore later, and and if it does, it wouldn't surprise me. Nothing surprises me in this story. I was going to say it wouldn't be surprising at all, given the the kind of the way the Gibney story has unfolded over the years. I mean, even now, correct me if I'm wrong, but how he avoided conviction on the charges. Um, and I suppose it is a distinction that's worth noting that that he wasn't convicted. The, the charges were ultimately um, dropped, but the reason for the charges being dropped and the circumstances around his uh, solicitor having a sister sit on the deciding bench of the court, everything there just seems to be a little bit questionable to say the least. But uh, am I right in saying that it's, it's not? A direct denial that gets him off these charges. It's kind of, you know, circumstance and kind of technicalities. Like too much time had passed by, and he couldn't account. He didn't have a diary that accounted for his movements on the days, and there wasn't precise timings mentioned. So it's all a bit vague, and that's ultimately how the charges come to be dropped, as opposed to a lack of evidence that prove he's one hundred percent innocent. Yeah, you're you're correct about that, and of course, it's Broadsheet.ie that deserves the credit, I think, for for the story of the uh, of, of of Gibney's lawyer, who is the brother of the Supreme Court justice, who is now, I believe, the Chief Justice. Chief Justice, yeah. Uh, and so that's 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 the uh, the Irish uh, criminal justice system. I mean, we we have our. Uh, our corruption here too, but that one's that one smells. But uh, but, but 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 you're right, you're right. Uh, the the charges were dropped not on the merits, but because of the passage of time, we would call it statute of limitations here. Statute now, of limitations. there's there's a division of opinion among Irish legal experts as to whether that was a that was legitimate in that case, uh, and and uh, there's been some movement by the courts in the other direction since the mid-1990s, which is part of what's giving hope to people now about reviving those cases. That's one point. But another point is that um, is that in, in the late 90s, uh, the Irish government commissioned a study that was called the Murphy Commission yeah. that looked into the the, of course, not just Gibney, but the but and I, and I'm not even going to start naming names because I'm going to botch them, and everyone in <laughs> Ireland knows them, and everyone who's read the coverage of Justine McCarthy and Johnny Watterson of the uh, of, uh, of the uh, Irish Times and others, or read Justine's book, knows these people and 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 how you know the Irish Amateur Swimming Association 
uh, was reconstructed uh, as Swim Ireland. Yeah. But uh, um, where was I? Uh, oh, I was going to say that the Murphy Commission uh, concluded that the that Gibney's accusers quote were vindicated. This was in 1998 in their report, and that is why, on top of my usual you know charming and aggressive style, which is different <laughs> than the mainstream news media, that is why I do not uh, uh, use any of the qualifiers of calling him an accused abuser or child molester or rapist whatever term you want to use as far as i'm concerned there is a government finding that these charges are so and uh and that the reason that he got off the hook legally in 1994 was purely a uh, a technicality so there, that we and we often run into this in talking about uh, uh, authority, sexual abuse of young people, of of, of finding a language uh, uh, in between the uh, the criminal outcome of the case, which is so complicated by the he said, she said, and 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 and, and all of the the bars. Lit, appropriately to uh to uh protect the rights of the accused mm. but uh but those are also overused in my view to chill conversation about what happened and again how the institutions who oversee these people have accountability for having a safe environment for young people. Erwin, you, you've mentioned the work by Justine McCartney and, and the, the brilliant, brilliant work that, that broadsheet.ie have done on it as well. And then, you know, people like Paul Kimmage and Dad have wrote about this. Have you yourself spoke to the victims who have come forward? I know guys like 1992, Olympian Gary O'Toole and Dad have, have talked about it. And, you know, have you talked to these people? And do they still hold out hope or... Is it more just despair and kind of try to put it behind them at this stage? Is is there a sentiment of that at all? Or I, I've spoken uh, uh, on email with 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 a few victims. I've spoken on the phone with Gary O'Toole, who is not a victim but is the big Sorry, hero yeah, of this story yeah. and a whistleblower. By the way, I've got to say that Ireland's a very small country because it seems like every person I talk to when Gary O'Toole comes up, they say. Oh yeah, he's my orthopedic surgeon, or he's or, or he's my he's my uh, my cousin's orthopedic surgeon. My, my mother's my, my uh, right knee is in the condition it's in because Mister O'Toole saved it. So uh, I'm one of those people as well. Right. So uh, Gary's a great guy, and I've and I've talked to him. But but uh, well, look, I I think that I think that victims are all over the map, and I think that that. It's important for people to realize that not everybody is destroyed by the slightest uh, indiscretion or even abuse that's visited upon them. Yeah. Some people thrive after that or you know overcome it. Uh, some people to uh, with of offenses uh, less egregious than others are scarred for life. But I think if you look at the entire universe of this problem, 
you see a tremendous public health issue that resonates across, you know, relationships, alcohol and drug abuse, suicide attempts. It's it's a terrible, horrible problem that we cannot be in denial about any longer. Irv, um, when what 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 is the outcome event? Do you want you want Gibney extradited? Is that the outcome? Well, I, I, baby steps here. Yeah. The first outcome, the first outcome I want is for the, and we're we're just about two weeks away from the federal government's decision on whether to appeal. My hope is that they don't appeal and that I'm going to get something. Now I'm still flying blind because I've never Judge Breyer looked at these documents privately in camera. And he has said that he's ruling substantially in my favor. So he is going to, re- if they abide by his order, they're going to release some more material to me. Now, Judge Breyer was clear that third-party names will still be redacted. So it's still going to require some sleuthing, some extrapolation from what we see there. Uh, I don't think we're going to have a document that says, I am the executive director of the American Swimming Coaches Association. And as you know, we're all here to cover up for George Gibney. And so I am offering him this job as a swimming coach. Sincerely, you know, American Swimming Coaches Association. Yeah. I don't think it I don't think it ever works that 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 easily. But I, but I do note that 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 Judge Judge Breyer both in the oral uh, hearing and in his rather brilliant ten-page written opinion, uh, did say that that you know Muchnick suspects that the that the ASCA uh, uh, greased the way for for Gibney's passage here. I don't know why the judge would have said that if there wasn't something there that would that would lend credence to or support that suspicion. But 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 to, again, to go back to your question, I'm looking for these documents to tell a story as a journalist. I don't think it's going to tell the full smoking gun story. But as we uh, Irish Jews like to say, it ain't chopped liver either. I'm sure there's going to be <laughs> I'm sure there's going to be more there. So uh, we'll take it from there. What happens at that point is. Uh, it is largely up to the uh, people in Ireland, the director of public prosecutions at the behest of TD Marino Sullivan has been uh, re-examining the Gibney file for some time. Something could come out of that. I don't know what would happen from there in terms of extraditing. You know, one other point, guys, there is a crime that Gibney committed on American soil. In 1991, when he was, uh, I believe, still the the, uh, the head coach of the Irish Olympic swimming team, he was the head coach in Barcelona in 1988. And I think uh, uh, Swim Ireland has tried to say he was no longer national coach by then, but it's kind of semantics because they're between Olympics. But in any case, uh, he was head coach of Trojans, the, uh, uh, his swim club, and he took them over to Florida for a training trip in 1991. And while there, it is alleged very credibly 
that he raped a teen swimmer at a Tampa hotel. Uh, uh, the story that came out last year from, from Justine McCarthy is that this swimmer was whisked to England because she was impregnated and she was, she was uh, brought to England by an Irish swimming official for an abortion. Yeah. And oh there has never been any uh, movement uh, here in America on that crime. And, and there's, there are actually some things happening behind the scenes on that that I can't talk about that would be greatly impacted by, uh, by uh, further daylighted documents from this immigration file. Wow. Well, as you said, it's it's about two weeks away from kind of the deadline for the appeal from uh, the, the federal government. So, um, yeah, don't get me wrong. If the government appeals, I'll be there, and my <laughs> fine attorney Roy Gordet will be there at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. But uh, obviously, uh, we hope it doesn't come to that. Fingers the, the, crossed. The, yeah. the, the government have a, have a lot more legal firepower than I have. <laughs> I, I just have persistence. Uh, yeah, a bit of tenacity in there as well. Um, we'll definitely be watching um, from over here anyway. Um, as I said to you when we were kind of initially setting up this this chat, um, we we live in an area that's no more than 10 minutes away from where Gibney perpetrated a lot of these crimes. Um, Glenalbin Swimming Pool and Trojan, both in the Slorgan and, and Newtown uh, Park Comprehensive School there, so they're not too far away from where we are. So... It's kind of a local case that you know some people will be aware of as well around here, and um, yeah, we'll definitely be watching out to, to to hopefully see it go in your favour and see what happens next. But um, if we if we can move on a little bit, Irv, um, another thing that's kind of in the news more recently was the death of wrestling legend Jimmy Superfly Snooker, whose story you also um, have wrote about. But not to kind of build up the legend, or, or to, certainly to promote the, the the wrestling superstar as he's being portrayed. Um, more so from the point of view of trying to get to the bottom of the death of Nancy Argentino. He, yes, uh, again to, to to take this back to the uh, to the genesis of the whole thing. I have to say that for more than thirty years. Pro wrestling has been the the black hole of my journalism career or literary career, or whatever you call this. I happen to be the nephew of a guy named Sam Muchnik, who is a Ukrainian yeah. immigrant who came to this country in the 19-teens and became a sports writer and then a wrestling promoter in St. Louis, which is St. Louis, Missouri, which is where I'm from, and, and was probably the number one figure in wrestling promotion in the world in the generation before Vince McMahon and the World Wrestling Federation, now WWE. My, my uncle Sam was one of the original organizers of the National Wrestling Alliance, which was a consortium of promoters back when the industry was structured sort of like the Mafia. There were 36 different regional offices in the United States, and they all cooperated trading talent and recognizing one, quote, world champion. 
And uh, that was all blown apart in the early 80s with the advent of cable television, which created the opportunity for a national and international marketing base uh, and deregulation by the Federal Communications Commission and by state athletic commissions. Uh, the uh, promotional war broke out and Vince McMahon won the war. Well, I've been fascinated by this subject since that time, the early 80s, and also fascinated by what you might call the pro-wrestlingization of American popular culture. And and uh, all I can say is you can imagine my chagrin when the final culminating chapter of this played out right in front of my nose during the 2016 presidential election season in the person of Donald Trump. And like just about every other regular pundit or pollster, I was totally in denial and oblivious to what was unfolding. So now we have, you know, now we have this child of pro wrestling, Donald Trump is the leader of the free world. Okay, so that's my long speech. <laughs> Over the years, I have been unsuccessful in marketing to a major publisher in New York a book about this phenomenon on the scale that I have seen it happening. The reasons for that, I don't know. Maybe it's my own lack of talent. Or maybe it is, as has been explained to me by these publishers in rejecting various proposals of mine, the problem that there is not a critical mass of people who are both interested in this subject and know how to read. Um, <laughs> I think, whatever. Um, any case, I have sold over the years a succession of magazine articles, some of which have been cover stories in major magazines about aspects of this phenomenon as an investigative journalist. They were collected in 1997 in my first book, which is called Wrestling Babylon, Pile Driving Tales of Drug, Sex, Death, and Scandal. Great title. Great and title. one of the chapters <laughs> of that book was uh, an article that was never published, but was commissioned by the Village Voice in 1992 on the 1983 death of Nancy Argentino, Jimmy Superfly Snooker's girlfriend, in a motel room just outside Allentown, Pennsylvania. So I did this article in 92. It it sat, it sat wasn't published by The Voice, which is another long story we won't get into. Uh, and along about 1999, I put it up online at a site I called Irvin Muchnick's Wrestling Journalism Archive. It was that both published and unpublished articles I'd, I'd done about wrestling. And it became a, uh, an internet uh, uh, samizat sensation uh, in that uh, people, wrestling fans mostly, passed it around, forwarded it, it got plagiarized and put on other sites. And so it became quite a story that then was natural to put into my, my book in 2007. Um, in 2012, late 2012, Jimmy Superfly Snuka published his autobiography and uh, talked 
in his usual incoherent and rambling way about the Nancy Argentino case. That so infuriated Nancy's family, and in particular her surviving sisters, Louise and Lorraine, that they set out with the approach of the 30th anniversary of the case to revive it and shed light on it. So we put out, uh, they worked with me in putting out an ebook, which 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 is kind of an annotated version of my original article from 1992, plus a lot of primary source documents, pictures, updates, and so forth. It's a, it's a little volume, but I would encourage uh, anyone listening to this to, to buy it on Amazon. It's called Justice Denied, The Untold Story of Nancy Argentino's Death in Jimmy Superfly Snooker's Motel Room. Every penny of royalties from that book goes toward organizations fighting domestic violence. I've never taken a dime from it. Brilliant. Very, very good. Uh, so we published that along about the 30th anniversary of the case, which was May of 2013. Now, at the same time, the local newspaper, the Allentown Morning Call, which was doing a series of, of articles on cold cases in their region, did a, a, a long front-page Sunday package on the uh, Snuka Argentino case, which is the longest-running murder cold case in the history of the Lehigh Valley, I believe. And look, don't get me wrong, they did a good job, and all politics is local, and they had a lot more juice than my little website. So, uh, And they did a lot of hard work and uncovered a couple of key documents, one of them being the autopsy report on Nancy Argentino, the other being the transcripts of Jimmy Snuka's police interrogation at the time. So all credit is due to them for reviving it to some extent. I have to say, uh, skeptic that I am, that I wonder where the Allentown Morning Call was for 30 years. Yeah. Because because there wasn't any new evidence. There was no big, you know, spectacular forensic breakthrough. It was really a story of why do the authorities do nothing at the time? Is it was it and because the, of Snooker's profile? We don't know. Uh, here's what here's here's what I think. Snooker. Uh, uh, goofball that he was uh, actually said in his book that Vince McMahon the, the head of WWF at the time showed up at the climactic meeting with prosecutors and Whitehall Township police detectives who were deciding whether to file charges against Snuka. McMahon showed up with a briefcase. Now why Snuka said that I don't know. The suggestion is that the briefcase had something in it, like cash. It was distributed. I've never subscribed to that theory in particular. I have a more general theory, which is that at that time, WWF was was taping its syndicated television shows in uh, in Allentown. That was what Snooker was there for. Was for a set of tapings that they were they were very important in the local economy and. And in the local image, the circus came through town every three weeks and made Allentown their virtual headquarters. Um, and that 
Vince McMahon and WWF had a lot of clout in that town. And that helped influence the district attorney at the time, William Platt, who is now a senior state judge, helped influence him into deciding to exercise his discretion not to file charges against Snuka. So in other words, I'm not saying that there was a bribe. I'm saying that there didn't have to be a bribe because okay. that was just the corporate power dynamics of that time period on top of the fact that you know celebrities get away with stuff even when they're not connected to companies that have influence in that in the town and that a young woman's life is cheap and uh, maybe we have a somewhat more heightened uh, consciousness about domestic violence uh uh than we have now the way the way i analogize the story generally is i say this is pro wrestling's chappaquiddick and that jimmy superfly snooker is senator ted kennedy and that nancy argentino is mary joe kopechny and uh i think that's a good way of looking at it metaphorically now in the particulars the cases are different it's not a vehicular homicide it's apparently uh, uh, spouse abuse, made abuse. Um, but uh, I don't know, have I answered your question there? You have, yeah. yeah. I ju I'm just wondering, um, the case, um, well, I was just wondering, what I suppose, what did the autopsy, when the Allentown uh, re released the autopsy then for the trial to be, the trial was to be reopened, was it? The case was to be reopened. Yeah, so after the Allentown Morning Call article in 2013, the district attorney of Lehigh County, who is now James Martin, who, by the way, was the assistant district attorney in 1983 under William Platt, announced that uh, they would impanel a grand jury to revisit the case. And they did, and in, in the summer of 2015, I believe in... September of 2015, Snooker was indicted for uh, uh, on murder charges. Uh, and uh, on what, what happened most? What happened most recently? After that, he got stomach cancer. He uh, uh, claimed and apparently did have dementia. Uh, just a couple of weeks before he died, the judge uh, uh, decided that the he couldn't be brought, he wasn't competent to stand trial and threw the case out. And then he died quickly thereafter. A lot of other things happened in between that I want to talk about. But let's go back to 1992 when I arrived uh, uh, on assignment for the Village Voice to uh, investigate this case. The first person I talked to was the coroner of the uh, medical, uh, chief medical examiner of lehigh county a, a gentleman named wayne snyder and he was the assistant coroner in 1983 and and when i introduced myself to him and he realized what i was there for the first words out of his mouth were upon examining the body and consulting with the forensic pathologist i immediately suspected foul play and so notified the district attorney wow from there, I went to the Whitehall Township Police, and I spoke to 
a detective named Gerald Procannon, who was one of the three detectives working on the case at the time in 83, and by 1992 was Whitehall Township chief of detectives. And he was really weird. He said to me that Jimmy Snuka told only one story. He was perfectly consistent and not evasive. The story was that they stopped driving into town. They stopped along the side of the road because Nancy had to relieve her bladder. She went uh, to the roadside to pee, slipped on something, fell, hit her head. It was knocked dizzy. She went back to the car, thought nothing of it. They drove back into town. They drove into town. They ordered takeout food. Jimmy went to the wrestling matches and came back and found her in distress. And as we'll see, that is that explanation by uh, by uh, Detective Procannon was total nonsense. And I so wrote as much in my Village Voice article, my unpublished Village Voice article. But Procannon also said there were no marks on her on Nancy's body indicating anything other than the fall that hit her head. And we now know that the, the forensic pathologist report showed that she had numerous contusions, marks, bruises all over her body, consistent, as the uh, doctor Isidore McAllis said, consistent with maid abuse. Procannon also said to me that he never heard from the family. They talked about settling Nancy's funeral bill or, or some expenses related to her funeral, and that was it. That was total nonsense because I talked to one of the two private investigators that the Argentino family commissioned. I got some of the records from that, and they showed that depending on how you count it and how you mix and match it, Snuka told between three and eight different stories of what happened to Nancy. One was she slipped on the roadside. One was that they were engaged in horseplay in the hotel room, and he pushed her, and she accidentally, you know, fell and hit her head, and he thought nothing, again, thought nothing of it and left her in the room and didn't know she was in distress until he came back later. Uh, and then there are different versions of that, whether it was horseplay or whether it was a, a lover's quarrel. It was here, it was there. He told various versions of it to the hospital chaplain, to nurses at the hospital, and even to the police. So what Procannon told me was totally inconsistent with, with the truth. I also spoke to a, a reporter for the Allentown Morning Call who did the story in 1983, and he vividly remembered, the reporter did, that as he was working on the story, Procannon grabbed him by the shoulders and reenacted how he thought Snuka had pushed Nancy, perhaps harder than he intended. And I talked to one of the two other detectives who worked on the case, who is now retired, and told me that he never believed Snuka. He also told me that Snuka, you know, in the police interrogation, clammed up and did his, like, jungle boy wrestler gimmick, where, you know, me no speak English that good. And he didn't know what they were talking about. And then when Vince McMahon arrived back from Connecticut, he was essentially Snooka's mouthpiece as the interrogation proceeded. So all these things casting 
grave doubt. And I've never, by the way, I've never heard anyone, any other reporter. There was there was someone who did an article for Penthouse Magazine who, who uh, talked to Procannon after I did. Procannon is apparently the only person that he has ever, uh, I'm the only person to whom he has ever so blatantly lied about. Even in the nineteen in the uh, 2013 Allentown Morning Call article, Procannon sort of said, "Well, the peed by the roadside theory was was the one that Snooka seemed to hang with the best." So he was walking back the idea that Snooka told one and only one story, and it was it was uh, credible and consistent. Other things happened when I when I was in Allentown in 1992. I wanted to do a scene setter for my story uh, describing the Allentown uh, Agricultural Hall where the WWF was taping its TV at that time. And I wanted to talk to people in the building about you know WWF's presence there and about Snooka in particular. So the building was closed because they didn't have any events going, but they did have a management staff there and a maintenance staff. So I knocked on the door and the building manager opened the door and he's he before i could i i just said i'm irv muchnick from the village voice uh i wanted to talk to you i hardly got more than that out of my mouth when he said we know why you're here we don't want any part of it and he, he closed the door on my face so uh guys i don't know if 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 this made the reruns in ireland it was a television series with James Garner in the 1970s called He was a private investigator. Crazy stuff was always happening to him. I called that my Rockford Files moment. <laughs> <laughs> where, where the building closed the door on my face before I could even tell him what I was, what I was there for. Obviously, this was a deep, dark town secret particularly among the police, but also in the community for a long time. And it's a shame that The Voice didn't help me blow this open in 1992. Did you, did you ever um, reach out to, when you when you were doing the report in 1992, did you ever reach out to WWF or Vince McMahon at all? I think I did and just got a no comment. I'd have to look at the text of the exactly what I wrote at the time. I should have reflected that. If I didn't, it was it was an oversight. But I mean, the story wasn't published. Yeah, yeah. By the way, it was thoroughly copy edited and ready for publication. The funny story about the Snooker thing is that it was actually what's called a sidebar to a big cover story on various WWF scandals at the time. The uh, the uh, uh, the sexual abuse scandal among the the ring boys. There were a couple of company the executives. Pat one, was it? Who, well, Pat Patterson was actually a, an accused sexual harasser of an announcer, somebody else, and, and Patterson was more or less exonerated. But Patterson's yeah. assistant, the late Terry Garvin, and a guy who was a part-time announcer and he was in charge of setting up the ring, a guy named Mel Phillips, were very... Uh, uh, strange characters who apparently preyed on ring boys and hangers on always kids from broken homes who traveled around and tried to be part of WWF. So that was really the main story that and the steroid scandal 
and the conviction of their attending physician in Pennsylvania, Dr. George Zahorian. That was really the main story that I was doing for the Village Voice and our difficulties in getting that edited and vetted and approved, which is a common theme of my journalism career too, I must say. <laughs> I found I find, you know, publications much too uh, cautious, even cowardly uh, in, in, in going to publication with these uh, reports. That was the reason that the Snooka thing wasn't. The Snooka story was great, and it was all ready to go. And if you read the read it in 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 the ebook Justice Denied or in my book Wrestling Babylon, you'll see that it was already copy edited into Village Voice style, so it was all ready to go. So that's just another one of the ironies that that the Snooka story was only a sidebar to the main story. But uh, it, Pro Canon, I did try to get public documents from the police records from Procannon in 1992, and he stonewalled me. As we all know since then, I'm, I'm Mr. Uh, Freedom of Information Act. I would, <laughs> I, I would have fought it, but I ran into, you know, I ran into these, uh, my relationship with the Village Voice went south. I didn't have anywhere to go with the story, so I didn't pursue it at the time, which is a regret. Because if I had, maybe... I would have gotten what the Allentown Morning Call reporters got in 2013, which is the actual document yeah. of the uh, the police interrogation and the autopsy report on Nancy. I, I would say that my 1992 article was certainly a roadmap for the uh, 2013 Allentown Morning Call reporters. But what wasn't also, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't it your people, your article in the people that lifted the lid on steroid abuse in the WWF? Well, I was, so there was this whole, you know, constellation of, uh, of, of tabloid stories and issues for WWF at the time that, that wrestling historians call Titan Gate because uh, uh, Vince's company then was called Titan Sports. And it, and it and it included this, uh, you know, spectacular trial of Dr. Zahorian, who was the first person prosecuted under a new federal law that criminalized distributing steroids for non-therapeutic purposes. And Dr. Zahorian was the uh, was the uh, attending physician at these shows in Allentown and in Hamburg, Pennsylvania, and the stories are legion of uh, uh he would be taking the blood pressure of the wrestlers they were lined up before the show and it and they came by and the doctor uh, took their blood pressure and he also handed them bags of drugs and they handed him hundred dollar bills it was like a conga line in the prosecution of zahorian there there were fed x records that showed you know that he was he was Past, he was mailing out packages of uh, of steroids to all of these guys, including Hulk Hogan, who got his subpoena to testify at the trial quashed on the grounds that it would harm his business interests and invade his privacy. So he didn't he didn't have to testify at the trial. We also learned at the trial that Vince McMahon himself was a customer of Dr. George Zahorian's steroid farm. And it led to the first of three iterations of what is now called the WWE 
wellness policy. Yeah. So they did institute drug testing in the early 90s after Zahorian went to prison. Uh, in the uh, Later on in the 1990s, while they were in fierce competition with Ted Turner's WCW, World Championship Wrestling, which for a time actually had overtaken uh, Vince McMahon's group as the number one promotion. Yeah, the famous Monday Night Wars. Exactly. During that period when WWF was losing money and was kind of being outflanked because it wasn't fair, they were steroid testing and Ted Turner and WCW really weren't. They suspended drug testing. They ended drug testing. So it's part of a pattern of what happens. And, and I'm not really singling out pro wrestling. I mean, it happens in, in any industry. If you don't have independent oversight, uh, a company is going to do good things while people are watching and then take them away when people aren't watching. Yeah, And, of course and that's then, really what's happened with drug testing. Then we had all so the they, deaths they, as well. They eliminated drug testing until... 2005, the death of Eddie Guerrero so focused public attention on this unbelievable pandemic of deaths in the pro wrestling industry, not all of which were WWE by any means, but WWE is the, you know, is the, is the dominant uh, uh, corporation in this industry, has an essential monopoly in America and a vast majority of the uh, revenue worldwide but at that point after eddie guerrero they did institute um the uh the drug testing that they have now that has been you know somewhat more successful i mean it's it's still a joke in my opinion when you look at the bodies of certain people and the inconsistencies and in the enforcement which is all at the behest and whim of one person vince mcmahon uh, it's still a bit of a joke, but it is it has certainly stemmed this awful death toll across so many years, which is really the story of of you know wrestling growing from this mom and pop operation I described from you know three plus decades ago to this global brand and uh, uh, marketing juggernaut that it is today given your your uncle was was sam and um he would have been involved heavily in pro wrestling were you a fan of pro wrestling i was uh in fact i tell the story in the first chapter of, of wrestling babylon about how on november 22nd 1963 which just happened to be the day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated, our president, in Dallas, Texas. My uncle had a wrestling show that night at Keel Auditorium in St. Louis. I was nine years old. And guess where I was? I was at the wrestling show that night. Wow. Lou Fez, NWA champion against the evil German Fritz von Erich. What happened was, and and, and it's it's an instructive story because... uh, that weekend, so this was on a Friday, the National Football League played its full slate of games on Sunday. And the commissioner of the NFL at the time, Pete Rozelle, was absolutely excoriated in the media for his bad taste 
in going through with a with a full schedule of pro football games while the country was reeling from the assassination of the president. In St. Louis, it was on a Friday. My uncle made the determination that it was too late. The wrestlers had already were already in town. It was too late to cancel the show. He went forward with it, and he brought in one of his local cronies, Monsignor Lewis Mayer, who is the uh, Lewis Meyer, I think, who is the uh, a director of the youth department of the Archdiocese of St. Louis. Monsignor Meyer uh, uh, did a, a, a eulogy to the president, led the crowd, which was about two thirds full, I think, Kill Auditorium that night. Uh, did a prayer in honor of the late president. They played the uh, army air, uh, army chorus uh, version of the uh, national anthem over the public address system as they always did, and then on with the show. <laughs> but but you know in in St. Louis, my uncle had the he was he was like a god. He had the press in his pocket. Everybody loved him. He was Mr. On he wasn't a very honest businessman. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but I, I contrast that with Pete Roselle. Everybody, the, the takeaway from that in St. Louis was, wow, what a class guy Sam Muchnick is. He brought in <laughs> Monsignor Mayer to, uh, to observe the president's death. No criticism for having <laughs> the wrestling show just hours after the assassination of President Kennedy. It's just funny. What was the mood like? I'm sorry. What was the mood like during the the, the show? It was a pretty and yeah, I mean, I was just a kid, but uh, it was a I think a pretty a somber. It probably wasn't as much heat as they say. But to, to answer your question, I I was a wrestling fan. I went to a lot of the shows. Uh, I met a lot of the wrestlers: Thez, Dick the Bruiser, Gene Kaniski when he was NWA champion was living in St. Louis in West County at that time in St. Louis. And he used to drop, uh, drop by my uncle Sam's house. Our family and Sam's family would get together on Sundays, Sunday night and watch TV and have ice cream. And Pat O'Connor was there sometimes. Gene Kaniski was there sometimes. So, uh, so yes, I, I, I was a fan. I, th I consider myself a soft core fan, but, but, uh, as, as this has unfolded over the years in my adulthood, people are, have been suspicious of just how good my memory is of uh, certain matches and storylines and, and and things that happened back in that era. So I have been accused of being uh, a, one of those uh, closet wrestling fans. <laughs> like Maybe I am. <laughs> I think we all are a little bit, aren't we? Um, to, to kind of jump back a little bit, Irv, just because you mentioned it just... The, the uh, almost unbelievable death toll of um, wrestling superstars kind of who died before their time, I suppose you could say, and the most high profile of those, and purely because the circumstances around it, um, the the Chris Benoit story, um, you covered that as well in in another book. Um, everybody, I would imagine, is, is somewhat familiar with this story, but but tell us kind of your take on it. Yeah, well, well, here, well, here's what happened. First, let's say that, that again, my big, I'm, I maybe over-intellectualized this or whatever, but I'm a, a culture 
corporate nerd, <laughs> and I've and I've I, I, and I've been interested in this story at 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 a high level. It's not just the story of wrestling getting big, but the story of wrestling values. It, again, is now like personified by Donald Trump, uh, creeping into the bloodstream of our larger culture and society. To me, that's always been the fascinating story, and people are people are seeing it right now. Vince McMahon's wife Linda has been nominated to be the uh, the the head of the Small Business Administration. So people are coming and saying, oh, this is your chance or write your essay on wrestling. You know, I'm so tired of it now. If if people haven't seen what I've been trying to say over the years, obviously there's a disconnect between my ability to market that message and and it's being received. But as far as Benoit, what happened You're probably being stopped, though, are you, Irv? You're probably being stopped. Right, right. So, so my book comes out in 2007, Wrestling Babylon. Uh, and I said, okay, I got my little legacy of you know, writing, say, getting, saying a few things about wrestling and American culture. What happened was I went to St. Louis for a mini, my hometown, for a mini book tour. This was in June of 2007. I, I, I did a few radio TV interviews. I I did a couple of bookstore events and I was flying back to St. Louis on a Sunday and I said, well, that was it. It was a nice run and it's over. And I get back to St. Louis, fire up the computer and I see the story of Chris Benoit. Well, within a few days after that, I was, I was uh, on the O'Reilly factor on Fox news and, uh, my publisher in Toronto, ECW Press, had commissioned me to write a book about the Chris Benoit case. And that was my second book, Chris and Nancy, the true story of the Benoit double murder, suicide and pro wrestling's cocktail of death. If I've got the whole title, right? My titles are a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) So that was, that was my second book and it came out in 2009 and, and, and where I, came across different than other people is again i i think it's pretty clear what happened with chris benoit he snapped he went postal it was it was some combination of uh his abuse of not just steroids but painkillers antidepressants and as i didn't give it enough perhaps weight to it at the time, although I mentioned it in the book, it was also his traumatic brain injury. I mean, he was, he was the uh, first study of the Boston group that's now called the uh, uh, Concussion Legacy Foundation. It's Christopher Led Nowinski, by Chris right? Nowinski, yeah. who, is, who is a former a WWE wrestler himself. But they... Benoit was actually the first study of that group, not the very first study of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, but the first one under the aegis of the Chris Nowinski group and, and, the doc, and their affiliated doctor at the time, Dr. Bennett Amalu, who then became the, the, the uh, person portrayed by Will Smith in the football movie of last year 
called Concussion. Uh, Chris Benoit was the first uh, study and one of the worst cases of CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, that that that, that was found in a in a uh, postmortem examination of a, a former contact sport athlete's brain. So so obviously it was some combination, and that's why I call it a cocktail of death. But there was something uniquely hazardous about the occupation of being a pro wrestler especially through that period that I think there was larger institutional accountability for that isn't really talked about in just seeing this as the story of one guy who went nuts and killed his family. And it's obviously a horrible, dark story. I also think when I went down to Georgia and examined exactly you know, how the case was investigated. You see a heavy thumb on the scales of the investigation by people close to WWE, if not by WWE itself. Again, it's very hard to establish a, a smoking gun for these things, but you really see a, a sheriff's investigation that I think was closed off and botched in not more clearly exposing the fact that WWE knew what had happened and uh, held off telling the public about it until they could finish doing their Monday Night Raw tribute show to Benoit, after which they washed his hands of him. So it's a story of uh, corporate chicanery as well as a story of an individual human tragedy and, and crime. Um, Irv, was 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 part of the motive to write the book? Um, correct me if I'm wrong again, but it was part of the motive to kind of say, "Look, you're watching this program weekly, you're enjoying it, um, but this is this is what was really happening behind the scenes." Yeah, and and you know whether you're talking about swimming sexual abuse or you're talking about this, I think unacceptable human toll in pro wrestling, and now I write about you know, American football, which I think, you know, no one, no youth should be playing this sport. If professionals want to do it for millions of dollars, fine. But uh, that's another whole subject that we're probably not going to have time for. But but my point is, whenever we do the, we get into these stories, my orientation makes me very unpopular with segments of my audience. Because I think that there's a there's an accountability here, not just for the uh, the people who uh, who take the risks and 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 perform for us sometimes stupidly sometimes bravely not just the uh, companies that employ them and don't uh, keep them safe enough or keep them informed enough about their risks not just those people but the audience themselves and in the case of like amateur athletes young swimmers uh, uh, the parent community doesn't want to hear from me when I tell them that they own a piece of this problem because parents who have dreams of college scholarships and Olympic glory for their kids and live vicariously through them outsource their parenting to these coaches, some of whom are turn out to be horrible creeps. They don't want to hear that. And I think wrestling fans and football fans don't want to hear that 
our participation as fans uh, and our refusal to hold the companies that we patronize accountable for the products that we enjoy uh, share a piece of ownership of this national health issue. It's a tough one to sell. It's a tough one for people to listen to. But that's what I do. That's my lot in life. I'm Mr. Bad News. <laughs> uh, you know, a journalist a journalist can't always have, like, perfect solutions for the problems that they expose. But if, if you're like me, you're driven to tell the truth and to expose them. So how, how, how would you um, sum up, say, Vince McMahon, Irv? Vince McMahon is a brilliant businessman, a visionary. Uh, he's 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 had a little bit of lady luck too, and he he inherited a promotion at the start of these historic wars of the 1980s that was in the heavily populated and media saturated northeastern United States. So his towns, New York, Boston, Philadelphia, etc., cetera, uh, where he had exclusive building deals, gave him an immediate advantage. And his proximity to MTV and NBC, his first two important television partners in the rock and wrestling connection and everything that flowed from that uh, gave him some like peculiar advantages. So he, he was dealt a good card, but there's no denying that he played those cards brilliantly and that he produced something that took that industry to another level. Now, the other part of that is at what cost? I mean, the wrestling was, was, uh, was, was at a, a slightly lower, it was a very popular activity that a lot of people didn't acknowledge. Don't get me wrong. It was, it was actually at, at a peak of popularity before uh, Vince really started his national expansion in places like Texas in uh, uh, Minneapolis and, 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 and other offices. It was it was more popular than New York wrestling was, uh, but he brought it all together. No question about it. But but my point is, at what cost uh, is this? Uh, look what wrestling has wrought, and I'm talking about the deaths, but I'm also talking about the way in which our national discourse and even our politics have been so uh, uh, polluted uh, by the uh, water supply of wrestling's use of language and use of, of, of uh, confrontation and anti-intellectualism, which we all can have fun with and be entertained by in certain contexts. But where, where has this gone? That's... That's the philosophical question that I've been pondering for 30 years and, and now continue to ponder. And it may be too late because I think fascism has, 
landed on American soil in the person of Donald Trump. I know you don't want to get all political, but that, <laughs> that's that's the end game, I'm afraid. I, I think it's unavoidable in this day and age, unfortunately. Yeah. But uh, that that philosophical question is a good one to leave and um, the listeners with. I think, um, Irvin, it's it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I'm not trying to blow smoke up your arse when I say this, but in, in an age where kind of clickbait journalism seems to be the the soup of the day, it's refreshing to talk to a journalist with with some balls. Um, your your work is brilliant, so please, please keep it up. Uh, keep fighting the good fight, as they say. Well, Danny and Graham, you're very kind. I really enjoyed it, and uh, and uh, let's uh, onward. There are a whole bunch of story threads. Let's hope if one of them, uh, you know, comes to fruition and gets something uh, positive uh, done and changed, or or gets uh, Gibney brought to justice or accountability for someone in authority, then. Uh, we can feel we've done our jobs. But in any case, it's it's great expressing myself all the same, and I appreciate this forum. Not at Thanks very much, Eric, um, for your time. If, if just so so people can, can can tune in and keep an eye on this Gibney thing and, and future endeavors of yours, um, they can follow you on Twitter and on your website. Website is concussioninc.net, C-O-N-C-U-S-S-I-O-N-I-N-C.net. I'm at Irv Much, I-R-V-M-U-C-H on Twitter, and please follow me and buy my books, and in particular, buy that ebook with uh, the Argentino sisters and, and support the uh, continued fight to uh, educate and, uh, and uh, improve conditions in the uh, societal problem of uh, domestic violence. Absolutely, Irv. It's been a pleasure, man. Thank you very much for joining us on WTS Pod. Okay, guys. Thanks, Irv. Thanks, Irv. Nice talking to you, folks. Bye-bye. Irvin Muchnik. Yeah, well. Man, the detail he has is just incredible, like. That was, because we wear, well, you wear headphones all the time. I don't yeah. wear headphones all the time, but yeah. it felt like I was listening to a podcast myself, yeah. and I was forgetting <laughs> yeah. to ask questions. Yeah, but, like, that's... And, but he was unbelievably informative, uh, his, his, what did he call it, re? His recall? His recall was absolutely unbelievable incredible like like so interesting the, the work he's doing is and and kind of he, he he's a bit self-deprecating in a way like talking about kind of you know i don't know if it's just my style or if i sell my things wrong yeah. or it, in truth some people aren't interested in that hard-hitting style that he has like but yeah. honestly guys ch- check out his stuff check out concussioning.net and that and like it does have to got to, it goes back to the dollar doesn't it the money that's it, you know what I mean? Like, like, what was so interesting was uh, one story, perhaps he, Erb obviously doesn't think uh, he believes in it, but that Vince McMahon showed up with a briefcase to yeah, snooker. Which, you know, ra- rather, as he said, he doesn't necessarily he believe, doesn't in, believe it, but, in it. But, I mean, if there's an if, if, if snooker put that in his book, then there's something maybe behind it. Or but what's snooker admitting you know? to there in his book? Well, that's the other side of it as well, you know? I mean, what, why is he even saying that? Why? Why, that? like... But um, I would talk to him for another hour and a half. He's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. Like he, his his knowledge and just his recall and his investigative skills are incredible. The Gibney but thing is crazy. I was gonna say the Gibney case it's is quite like disturbing, uh, and it has such a local connection to yeah. you know what I mean. Like I don't get why those convictions were dropped in in the early nineties. Yeah, and it is, look, it is it's an important distinction to make as well as that they were charges. He wasn't convicted, um, but at the same time, it doesn't exactly seem like. He's pleading innocent. 
it no. doesn't seem like there's been anything prime time have done investigations and I know they confronted him on one of the shows a number of years ago in a car park and he just sped off but um really yeah has I he not been in America since the mid 90s yeah the sorry prime time went to Florida no when, way. when they found it yeah I think it was about 2009 I could be wrong now but if I'd um, love to see that episode again if you honestly lads the George Gibney case if for just no Google George Gibney. If for no other reason other than to, to kind of educate yourself on, you know, a predator and to educate yourself on if 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 for example you have kids and they are involved in clubs and kind of that kind of thing, like this sort of stuff opens your eyes to things that, you know, maybe and look, I suppose look, naivety isn't a bad thing in, in the sense of, you know, everybody should presume innocence. Everybody should presume yeah. everything's okay, but you know, sometimes it's not okay, and that's... The story of um, him convicting a crime on American soil in 91 while the Irish team was competing in, in Florida. That that particular case... And then flying to England for an abortion. That, that is absolutely that, sick. That particular girl, I, I don't think that the names are being revealed or else I maybe missed it, but the Justine McCarthy, uh, the Justine McCarthy book that, that I ever talking about, Deep Waters, that covers it, and... As well as that, Paul Kim has wrote about it as well. That poor girl has attempted suicide and everything. In 2004, I think it was, but shortly before 2004, she tried to, to press charges again and tried to sue various parties that were involved in this. And in 2004, the police came to her and told her that the DPP would not be seeking extradition of George Gibney. The night she was told that, she attempted to hang herself from a tree in uh, I think it was like a church grounds or something like that. Kimmage told that story, didn't he? Yeah, and yeah, on, only I for a priest found her. She she'd have died that night. Like now she's tried to, to commit suicide several times, but that's just I like there is no way these people will be coming forward with this information. No way no. you'd have seven swimmers making sworn statements to Gardie that between nineteen sixty whatever and nineteen eighty whatever, Gibney was sexually abusing them and you wouldn't have a woman so racked with with, with just distress uh, and everything else that she tries to kill herself and like how how Irish justice systems and how the American justice system haven't done more to bring this man to justice baffling right it's crazy absolutely baffling like I, I'm puzzled by it but thankfully there's people like Gary Muchnick out there who are really really trying to not let it go and exactly get justice. And, and for justice to see a bit of daylight in this case but follow that follow that one lads follow that closely air for much on twitter and keep heavy an eye one on. but a good informative one yeah exactly and and keep an eye out for um for the gibney stuff breaking over the next couple of weeks and broadsheet.ie is a great resource genuinely mean that like it's yeah as i said a heavy one but a, but a good one so yeah, as I said, I was forgetting to ask questions because I was, was just sitting back and listening, sitting like back, his, nearly nodding off. <laughs> yeah, his, like his story and his detail is just absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Um. Anyways, anyways that's us. That's us for time. this week. The yeah. Fire Chapter Eighty Three. Where are we, Danny? We're uh, at Fitzpatrick Castle Hotel, of course, Graham. Lovely. And um, where are you on Twitter? I'm at Dan Joe Murray on Twitter. You've what? thrown me. This is normally what we do. Okay. I'm at Merrigan Mania. Yeah, we're at WTS Pod. We're at WTS Pod. Yeah. Share. Retweet, favorite, like, whatever you want. All that. Get onto iTunes, leave reviews. Um, we have a competition on GamerCon coming yeah, up. The, VIP the tickets. Yep, yeah, the retro gamer, Nisha O'Hare, gave us two VIP passes. 
You can't get them. They're sold, They're sold out, out. The Saturday VIP passes for GamerCon taking place in Dublin. Uh, Paddy's weekend in March. Sold out, lads, but we've got two VIP passes courtesy of Nisha O'Hare, the retro gamer. And Make that sure competition will be coming up soon. We'll give you details. On Facebook. We'll give you details of that in the coming weeks. Check out FitzpatrickCastle.com for more. But, uh, Will yeah, we head off? That's it. Graham. Clear eyes. Full hearts. Can't lose. Too sweet. Too sweet. Good luck. Good luck.